So I'm going to start by praying, and then we're going to read through Luke chapter 4, beginning in verse 16. And I, I hope you're ready for this, because this is, this is challenging, this is engaging, this brings the, the scalpel of truth very close to the human heart. And if you found yourself in this chapter saying, wow, those people, why did they act that way? How could they have been that way? If you found yourself acting that way, you read it wrong. You read it wrong because what this chapter could have done and should have done is caused you to be very introspective and aware of the inherent ability of human pride and human bigotry to teeter into a rejection of truth. And that's not just something that is their problem or a problem for those people. That's a human problem. That's a universal problem. And so today's chapter is going to be good. It's going to be good. It's going to be challenging. It's going to be confronting. And so we're going to start with prayer. We're going to get into this. Father in heaven, I want to praise your name for this incredible testimony that Jason has sent. And Father, it is a testimony that moves us to our innermost souls because it brings us face to face with our own frailty, our own fragility and mortality. Father, that as Peter said, or was it Paul said, the outward man, excuse me, Paul perishes but the inward man is being renewed day by day. And Father, Jason is having that experience well and truly. And I want to pray right now a special prayer of healing and of restoration for his cancer. Father, I'm just learning now that, that he's been diagnosed with Hodgkin's lymphoma and I'm devastated. And so I want to pray for Jason, Lord. When I think of him in my mind, he's, he's big and he's loud and he's fun and he's effervescent and he's, he's all of the things that... that you made him to be, and he's a beautiful person. Um, but Father, he has been in a dark place, and part of that dark place has been the inclination to self-harm and even to not want to live anymore. And yet, Father, here you've brought him to Jesus through the DA with DA challenge and through the desire of ages. And Father, I just want to pray that even as his body is wrestling right now with cancer and the chemotherapy treatments, that his heart would just be growing larger and still larger so that no room is left for bigotry, for prejudice, for pride, for inclinations to self-harm, and that Jesus would eclipse all of that. Father, not just in Jason's life, but in my life and, the, and in the life of all of those who are listening. Father, thank you for this incredible testimony. It's the perfect segue into this chapter today, chapter 24. Is this not the carpenter's son? So be with us now, we ask, as we, as we open this book, may you open our hearts is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we're in Luke chapter four. Welcome everyone. Welcome Nancy, Julia, SM California, girl 18, Laura Hasty. By the way, I have a surprise coming. I have a surprise coming up, not next week, but the following week. I'll tell you more about that when we get there. It's not the big surprise that I've mentioned several times before. I'm still waiting on more information on that. But we're today in chapter 25, and I don't know if you knew this or not. When we get to chapter 27, I think this is right. When, we get, when we're through with chapter 27, then we're through a, the first third of the book, right? Because there's 87 chapters, 87, close to that. I, I'm, my math's not exactly right there, but we're right at about a third of the way through. We're getting very close. And so we got some big things in store. I've got a really cool surprise coming in about two weeks time, and uh, you're going to love it. I know you're going to love it. All right, here we go. Luke chapter four, beginning in verse 16. 
So he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. And he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written. The spirit of Yahweh is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the acceptable year of Yahweh. Then he closed the book and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. So all bore witness to him and marveled at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. And they said, is this not Joseph? Joseph's son? And he said to them, you will surely say this proverb to me, physician, heal yourself. Whatever we have heard done in Capernaum, do also here in your own country. Then he said, assuredly, I say to you, no prophet is accepted in his own country. But I tell you truly, many widows were in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and there was a great famine throughout all the land. But to none of them was Elijah sent except to Zarephath in the region of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And many lepers were in Israel in the time of Elisha the prophet, and none of them was cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. So all those in the synagogue, when they heard these things, were filled with wrath and rose up and thrust them out of the city, and they led him to the brow of a hill on which their city was built, that they might throw him down over the cliff. Then passing through the midst of them, he went his way. Wow, that escalated very quickly. The, the, the contrast, the shift, the pivot in this chapter is so remarkable and so, frankly, unexpected. When, you're, when you've read verse 22, oh, you've got to be kidding. Oh, I just took my wife's call. <laughs> Terrible. Okay, let's try that. Okay, we're back. Violetta, please don't call me right now. I'm busy. <laughs> She's in Florida. Okay, as I was saying, when you read verse 22, so all bore witness of him and marveled at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth, you wouldn't expect that just, what, six or seven verses later, that they would be filled with wrath and trying to throw Jesus off of a cliff. That's a shift. That's a pivot. That is a remarkable transition from this sort of positive, homecoming for the, the hometown kid, and then all of a sudden they're trying to throw him off of a cliff. How, what, what did Jesus say there that was so offensive, that was so confronting to them that they thought, hey, we gotta kill this guy. We gotta kill the hometown kid. And so that's what we're gonna talk about today. In many ways, this chapter is a very logical and, and sequential um, progression from yesterday's chapter, because yesterday's chapter, remember, was that prophetic breather in which we sort of panned out, took a look at the great prophecies, particularly with regards to the timing of Jesus' arrival and the prophecy of Daniel chapter nine, right? 70 weeks are determined. And that was sort of the big picture of the Jewish nation being given the privilege to be the heralds, the proclaimers, 
of the gospel, but they didn't know the time. That was our word yesterday. They didn't know the time of their visitation. Well, we go from that sort of macro global picture of the Jewish nation not knowing the time of their visitation to an instantiation, an example, a micro example of Jesus coming to his hometown, coming to the area where he had been raised, and the people of that town and city not knowing the time of their visitation. In fact, this chapter has got a lot of Daniel 9 in it. We were in Daniel 9 yesterday. Messiah rejected, city destroyed. Remember that? A, B, A, B, A, B. And this chapter in at least two places specifically has Daniel 9-esque language in it. And so she moves from the macro, big, general, universal picture of the Jewish nation not recognizing the time of their visitation from the promised Messiah to an example of it, to a real world, you know, in the trenches example of Jesus coming to his hometown and they're not, them not recognizing or not wanting to recognize that Messiah had come. And they didn't know the time of their visitation. Not only did they not know the time of their visitation, they wanted to end the life of Messiah. Okay, let's get into this. Um, so we're going to go through this a little bit slowly because there's a lot going on here. And uh, I'm going to save the word until the very end because the word occurs only one time in this chapter, I think. I could only find it once. Uh, and it's in the second to the last Paragraph. So we'll get to the word eventually. Um, I really like the opening paragraph, very short, just two sent three sentences. Across the bright days of Christ's ministry in Galilee, one shadow lay. The people of Nazareth rejected him. Is this not the carpenter's son, they said. And so this bright, sunny picture, Jesus' experience in Jerusalem was largely hostile, largely non-receptive. And so as Jesus makes his way to Galilee, as he makes his way to Cana, receptivity increases. People are happy to see Jesus. He's healing, he's teaching, he's ministering. And she says it was bright, it was sunny, it was great. There was a lot of reception and openness, except there was a shadow that lay across that otherwise positive scene. And that was the shadow of his own hometown, Nazareth. And remember, Nazareth means it comes from the word branch, right? Branch, his hometown of branch. And um, I, I wrote something down here. Oh, if you, again, just read the Gospel of Luke, if you read Luke's narrative, it's very interesting. It goes from the temptation of Jesus, that's Luke chapter four, in the wilderness. That's a long time ago, right? In terms of our walk through Desire of Ages, it goes from the temptation of Jesus into the wilderness, and then just these this one, no, two transition verses, verses 14 and 15. Let me just read this to you. So this is the last temptation. And Jesus answered and said to him, it has been said, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. Now, when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. That's verse 13. Now, verses 14 and 15. Then Jesus returned in the power of the spirit to Galilee and news of him went out through all the surrounding region and he taught in their synagogues being glorified by all. And then our passage today. So he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up and as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. So this is a really great illustration of what we talked about yesterday, how an attempted harmonization of all of the gospels is, is not easy and they're clearly following different trajectories. You have Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the so-called synoptic gospels that go basically from the temptation right into our account today about Jesus' homecoming in Nazareth. 
But where's the encounter with Nicodemus? Where's the encounter with the woman at the well? Where's the uh, miracle at Cana with the turning of water into wine? The way that that's been described to us here, and I think this is an accurate um, location of those events, is that those have happened before, right? Jesus' ministry, he's already, even the cleansing of the temple wasn't mentioned, right? In Luke. No, it goes from John the Baptist in chapter three to John baptizes Jesus in chapter three to the temptation to the Nazareth. So the point here is, in Matthew and Mark and Luke, there is a similar kind of trajectory. John departs radically from that. And all of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are only telling a a fraction, really, of the events that made up the life of Jesus. They are all telling a purposeful story that, I mean, just think of this. We just read this verse here. He taught in all their synagogues, being glorified by all. And it says that he traveled through all the surrounding region. Well, I mean, what are the stories, what are the testimonies, what are the tales that could have been told based on just verses 14 and 15? We don't know. So all of the gospel accounts are telling a truncated, you know, shortened version of the actual life and ministry and teachings and healings of Jesus. So I just thought it was very interesting that we go basically from the temptation to Nazareth, right, in the flow of Luke's gospel. Now, What she then does is in that large sort of second paragraph there on page one, I'm on page 262 of the types and symbols, 236 of the original. She, it's kind of the story, I just wrote homecoming in the margin. Jesus has returned, familiar faces, familiar streets. You know, people say, oh yeah, I remember that. Well, that young whippersnapper, I remember him. People looking at Jesus, remembering, oh, this is Mary's son, this is Joseph's son. Jesus remembering them. Okay, so you kind of get this sense of welcome, of homecoming, and uh, then it becomes uh, Sabbath, right? The Sabbath day comes, and in the third paragraph, she describes how in the Sabbath um, service in the synagogue, what would happen is there would be a reading, and the elder would speak on the issue of the day, the passage of the day, the text of the day, and she makes it very clear that the most frequent and um, appreciated theme, the most common theme, was the theme of the return of Messiah, the coming one. And she uses the language, the hope for the coming one, to bring in a glorious reign. Uh, The elder would remind them that Messiah's coming was near. He described the glory of his advent, keeping prominent the thought, and I thought this was interesting, that he would appear at the head of the armies to deliver Israel. Okay, so that's the theme. That's the theme. That's the theme that you'd be hearing sort of, you know, week after week, Sabbath after Sabbath, because the inescapable reality of first century Judaism is that you're under the yoke of Roman subjugation and oppression. And so naturally, people's inclination and the things they wanted to hear and the things that the teachers wanted to teach would address their specific situation. The problem, of course, is that the Messiah that's looked for was not the Messiah that's promised. There has been a intermingling and a conflation of the kingdom of grace, which is Jesus' first advent, and the kingdom of glory, which is Jesus' second advent. Um, so in the, in the course of events, Jesus was requested, I'm in the next paragraph there, and I just wrote hometown hero. I just wrote hometown hero in the margin there, that, hey, Jesus is back. And, you know, word had spread. Word was on the street, and, and people that had known 
you know, as we've talked about, privacy was not a major feature of, you know, life in the ancient world. So people would have heard, they would have known there's murmurings, there's reports that this guy might be the guy, he might be the Messiah. People were remembering him. Oh yeah, he was a, he was a peculiar child. He was a unique child. And so he's come back and they've heard reports about healings and preaching and large crowds. And so there's this kind of sense of, Hometown pride and this, this, he's one of ours. He's one of ours. Well, that one of ours applies not just to the people of Nazareth, but especially he's one of us. He's a Jew. He's one of us. And like us, he hates the heathen. He hates the Romans. And so they're expecting, their expectation is that he will continue in that same narrative, that same trajectory that they're accustomed to hearing Sabbath after Sabbath in the synagogue. And so, now this is a little detail that Ellen White did not bring out, but to me it's one of the most interesting things in the Luke, Lucan account. And I'll just read it to you in verse 17. Verse 17 says, so they're in the synagogue on the Sabbath, as was Jesus' custom. We've already mentioned how the Sabbath was very important in the life of Jesus. We'll get to a chapter on the Sabbath in a little bit. But listen to this. He was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah, Okay, so the the scroll, the book is handed to him. And listen to this. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written. Oh, that's always popped to me. In fact, I've actually underlined it right here. He found the place. Okay, so the picture that I've always had in my mind, and, and Ellen White doesn't say this. What she says is, I'll just read it to you. The scripture which he read was one that was understood as referring to the Messiah. And then she just quotes the passage. But I love Luke's account here. He found this place. He found it. He located it. Now, I do not know if maybe there was a prescribed reading for that day or a daily reading or if they were on some kind of a calendar. Whatever the case may be, whatever the scheduled reading was, when they handed Jesus the scroll of Isaiah, he took a look at it and he took the time to find this particular passage. And what he finds is actually two passages. What we would call, of course, the pagination and the chapterization was added later, but what we would call Isaiah chapter 61 and Isaiah chapter, is it 48 or 49? Isaiah 49. So Isaiah 61 and 49, and he finds these, he finds them, he locates them purposefully. This is not serendipitous. Jesus located this specific passage for two reasons. Number one, he knew that it was one of the great messianic promises and prophecies that anticipated the work of Messiah, the mission of Messiah, the character of Messiah. But he also knew that there was a major misunderstanding in this passage. And so when Jesus read the passage, and I'll just read it here, the spirit of Yahweh is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those that are oppressed and to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. When he reads that passage, he knows that what he is saying and what was originally intended in Isaiah's writing is not what the hearers are hearing. And this was the rabbit hole I got stuck in this morning. I, I went down it for about 15 minutes and I said, I don't got time for this. I, I don't have, I'll have to come back to this. Now, you won't be able to see this, but I have what's called a center column reference Bible, right? So this is a, a New King James center column, center column reference Bible where illusions or passages that are either quoted from the Old Testament or that are similar to passages, they'll give you a reference. Or like in the case of the Gospels, they'll say, oh, this also occurs in Mark 6 or Matthew 13 or whatever. Okay, so in this center column reference here, 
on verses 18 and 19, which is this section here that Jesus just read, right? From Isaiah 61 and Isaiah 49. So I was like, oh, that's interesting. I'll, back, I'll go back and read those. So this morning I went back through, looked at Isaiah 61, looked at Isaiah 49. I'm not in the rabbit hole yet. But what I did find is that, and I was like, what? What? Now, I don't think I can help you to see this, but I'm just gonna point to it because I know the resolution is not great. What I'm pointing to right there, right there, and I'll see if I can show it to you on the YouTube version, right there. Now, again, you probably can't see it, but let me just read it. I'll just tell you what it says. So this is for verse 18. Isaiah 49, eight and nine, check. Isaiah 61, one and two, check. Daniel 9.24? Daniel 9.24? That's what we read yesterday. Daniel 9.24 is the passage that we read yesterday where Gabriel says to Daniel, 70 weeks are determined upon your city and your people to do these six things, to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to anoint the most holy. And I was like, whoa, 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 whoa. Really? So I went back over and read it again and I, I couldn't find anything that immediately jumped out to me as being from Daniel 9, 24. So I went back and I read it and that's, I got, I was like, well, maybe in the Septuagint, it's a little different. Or, so I got, I went down that little rabbit hole and then I thought, oh, I don't have time for this. Backed out of the rabbit hole. But beloved, that's the very passage we were in yesterday. Now, again, I don't know the connection. I'm being really honest with you right now. I don't know. All I know is that for some reason, the, the makers of this center column reference Bible thought or think that something that Jesus quotes here from Isaiah 61 and Isaiah 49 is also tapping into Daniel 9, 24 to 27. I gotta, that's a stone. I gotta pick that up and have a look under there. And if you know what that's a reference to, leave a comment in this video because not one of these comments here, but a comment later so that I can go back and read it because I was like, what? What? Now, back to the point, because I, I need to go explore that. Back to the point, when Jesus reads this passage, he knows that what Isaiah intended and what the Spirit inspired and what Jesus is saying is not what they're hearing. There's ships in the night, right? Because they're hearing the things that are being said in Isaiah 61, which is a prophecy and anticipation of the Jubilee. In fact, it ends there where it says, to proclaim the acceptable year of Yahweh. Okay, so he reads this section and, and they hear it. This is so important. It's one of the major themes of today. They hear it in such a way so as to flatter their national, spiritual, personal pride. That's the point. But that's not why Jesus found this passage. He didn't like select a passage to cater to the normal trajectory and the normal rhythm and theme of things that they were hearing, he's purposefully selected this passage for a different purpose. He wants to bring something to their minds. And then, and then, okay, so I'm back in Desire of Ages, page 263. Jesus stood before the people, 237 of the original. Jesus stood before the people as a living expositor of the prophecies concerning himself. Ooh, that's good, right? He's the giver of the prophecies. He's the inspirer of the prophecies. And now he's the expositor of the prophecies explaining the words he had read, he spoke of the Messiah as, and she uses a bunch of great words here, a reliever, a liberator, a healer, a restorer, great words, right? Revealing 
to the world the light of truth. Now, she says that as he gave this explanation, because he didn't just read the passage, he read the passage and then he explained it. He gave like a little, what we would call a sermon, right? A homily. He, he explained, he exposited the passage. I just thought this was really great. It says that the, the conviction came so powerfully to their hearts that the barriers were broken down. And then she says, they beheld the invisible. That's a phrase here. I underlined it. They beheld the invisible. Well, behold means to see, right? Beauty is in the eye of the beholder. So I'll just sort of take the word beheld there and insert the synonym to see. They saw the invisible. They saw the invisible. And obviously that is oxymoronic. That's paradoxical. How do you see the unseeable? How do you behold the invisible? Well, I just wrote here in my margin, you might want to do the same. This has Hebrews 11 and Romans 1 vibes. Hebrews 11, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. The evidence of things that are not seen, but they are seen, but they're not seen, but they are. And then Romans chapter 1, verse 20 says, the invisible attributes of God are clearly seen, being understood by his created work. So, so you have this really fascinating tension in scripture that we can see things that are invisible and we can discern things that are not extended physically in space. Well, this goes back to this idea that I've mentioned before about a deniable sign, something that you yourself know, God has revealed it to you, God has shown it to you and the spirit of God has spoken to you and said, this is the truth. This is the thing right here and you're beholding, you're discerning, you're seeing the invisible. And that's what happened when the one to whom the prophecies pointed became the explainer of the prophecies in the synagogue of Nazareth. They were all convicted in their hearts, but there was a problem. And the problem was the particular version of Messiah that Jesus had painted, the portrait that he had painted, the, 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 the way that he had crafted and explained Isaiah 61 and 49 didn't quite fit with what their expectation was. Remember, the glorious reign, the hope for the coming one, Messiah's coming was near at the head of the armies to deliver Israel. Those are all quotes. Here, he speaks of Messiah, I'll give you the phrases again, or the words again, as a reliever, as a liberator, as a healer, as a restorer. And so Jesus senses the disconnect. They're proud of the hometown hero. They can tell there's a wisdom, there's a spiritual power that he possesses. But the things that he had said had not flattered their national ambitions, their spiritual pride. It hadn't further buttressed their own bigotry and prejudice toward the surrounding peoples. And worst of all, he hadn't said anything about Rome. He hadn't said anything about Rome. And so now back to the Luke account, because the Luke account here is just too good. Verse 20, then he closed the book, he gave it back to the attendant and he sat down. So he's finished his reading, he's finished his exposition and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. What he had said and the way he had read the passage, people saw the invisible. They knew something big, something spiritual had just happened. They had just witnessed something remarkable. This wasn't, you know, a run-of-the-mill, everyday sort of routine sermon in the synagogue on the Sabbath. Something remarkable had just happened. 
Verse 22, so all bore witness to him and marveled at the gracious words that proceeded out of his mouth. But then they said, isn't this Joseph's son? So there's this doubt mingled with belief. And if you want to just make a note here, go through and mark all of the times in this chapter where the word unbelief is used. Unbelief, 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 unbelief. Okay? Then Jesus, Jesus had suggested... He had hinted, he had pointed at the fact that what Isaiah 61 and Isaiah 49 were actually teaching was not going to flatter their national ambitions and pride, their spiritual pride. But when he senses now that there's like, who is this guy to talk like this? Isn't this Joseph's son? Now Jesus twists the knife. Now he says something that was, number one, was revealing of his total mastery of the Old Testament. We've talked about that. Jesus' mastery of the Old Testament, his awareness of the Old Testament with the stories, the teachings, the prophecies, the, the, the narrative of the Old Testament. And it absolutely pierced them in their sense of national pride. And Jesus selects provocatively, purposefully, two instances from Israel's history And he basically says this, look, I know what you're going to say to me. You're going to say, physician, heal yourself. If you're all that, heal yourself. And then he says, what you're going to say to me is all, okay, enough about the flowery words and the nice exposition of, you know, the prophecies of Isaiah. Just do some miracles. Show us some cool stuff. The stuff that we've heard about in Capernaum, do that here. We want to see your power. We've heard reports and rumors that you might be the Messiah Show out, show yourself to be the guy that some say you are. That's what they're saying. That's what they're thinking. Jesus reads the situation and rather than acquiescing to their expectation, which he knew he could not do, he actually puts that knife in, the knife of scripture, the scalpel of truth, and he twists it. Assuredly, I say to you, no prophet is accepted in his own country. Ooh, ooh. This is his hometown. So he just throws that out there. And then he gives two scriptural instances of this. I tell you truly, many widows were in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heaven was shut up three years and six months. This is not a happy period in Israel's history. It was a period of great apostasy and of God's withdrawal from his chosen people, right? There was a famine throughout the land, but to none of them was Elijah sent except to Zarephath and the region of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. So, so, to a Gentile, to a Gentile, to a non-Jew. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of Elisha the prophet, and none of them was cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. A Gentile, a non-Jew, a heathen. Well, (laughs) the listeners in Nazareth that day knew exactly what Jesus was saying, and they became enraged, right? So all those in the synagogue, when they heard these things, they were filled with wrath, and this is where they take him out and try to throw him off. Okay, so let's try to understand a little bit more of what's going on here. Jesus' exposition of Isaiah 61 and Isaiah 49 did not fit again with the cookie-cutter mode of a military Messiah that would come in and deliver Israel and usher in excuse me, the kingdom of glory. I'm now turning the page. I'm on page 264 of the Types and Symbols, 238 of the original. And I just, what I did here is I highlighted a number of times where it says they, there. And I just want to read this to you. I'm going to purposely put emphasis on they and there because I think this is the way this is supposed to be read. 
They, Israelites, children of Abraham, had been represented as in bondage. They had been addressed as prisoners to be delivered from the power of evil, as in darkness, as ne- and needing the light of truth. Their pride was offended and their fears were roused. The words of Jesus indicated that his work for them was to be altogether was to be altogether different from what they desired. Their deeds might be investigated too closely, notwithstanding their exactness in outward ceremonies, they shrank from inspection by those clear searching eyes. The, us the way that he spoke, the way that he exposited and explained Isaiah 61 and 49, it's like he made it out like it applied to us. It's like he was talking to us. He wasn't talking about them and us as the, the ones that will be elevated at Messiah's arrival. It's like, he was, it's like he was saying that this stuff about darkness and blindness and liberation applied to us. And the passage that came to my mind, and I wrote it here in the margin, is this incredible statement in John 8, 33. John 8, 33, where Jesus gets into this vigorous dialogue. We'll get there eventually. This vigorous dialogue with the religious leaders of his day. This is the passage you might remember where Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. Right, John 8, 58. But before that, listen to this. John 8, 33, as Jesus is in this vigorous dialogue with the religious leaders, they say this. They say this. John 8, 33. They answered and said to him, we are Abraham's descendants and have never been in bondage to anyone. <laughs> well, first of all, you have to admire the remarkable self-deception and ignorance of Jewish history that would be required in order to say that. Never been in bondage to anyone? Um, fact check, false. The actual whole string, the whole history of Israel was basically an uninterrupted subjection to pagan powers with the exception of, you know, a, a period of, you know, fairly brief glory under the Davidic and Solomonic reigns and some of their descendants. But I mean, really? Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, um, the Medes, the Greeks, and now the Romans? We've never been in bondage to anyone. Talk about a... Uh, selective reading, a selective version, I mean, a completely delusional reading of Jewish history. But, but here's the same idea, right? I'll read it again. They, I'm reading Desire of Ages, same thing I just read on page 264, 238. They, Israelites, children of Abraham, had been resented as in bondage. They had been addressed as prisoners to be delivered from the power of evil. They were in darkness and needing the light of truth. Yeah, actually. Yeah, actually. And so they then ask the question, who is this Jesus? Isn't this Joseph's son? Who is this guy that thinks he knows everything? What he is saying is clearly out of harmony with what we normally hear, what we're always told, what our parents taught us and our parents' parents taught us. Who does this guy think he is? Right, that's what's going on here. And then uh, third paragraph there on page 264, 238, I'm on the same page. What a contrast between the teaching, between his teaching in regard to the new kingdom and that which they had heard from their elder. Jesus had said nothing of delivering them from the Romans. 
So in a way, what Jesus said was offensive, but what he hadn't said was disruptive. How can you preach a whole sermon? How can you give a whole explanation, a whole exposition of Isaiah 61 and Isaiah 49 and not talk about Rome? Because Jesus came to deliver from a greater than Rome, a more powerful than Rome, a more dangerous than Rome, from sin itself, right? And from the selfish self-deception of the unregenerate human heart. Uh, This is when they, you know, then clearly they're looking, I just wrote here in the margin, hoping for miracles, not for a soul-searching Messiah. That's what they're after. Hey, 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 that stuff that we've heard about. The water to wine, all these reports that are circulating. Hey, do, do, do some of that stuff for us. They weren't looking for the scalpel of truth and a new, fresh exposition, an innovative exposition of Old Testament passages that pointed to God as conquering not Rome and the pagan powers, but conquering the sinfulness of the human heart and death itself. That's not what we're interested in. We don't want the truth. We want flattering fables. Give us flattering fables. Enough with this truth. Um, she then talks about how when Jesus had spoken, how their hearts had been pierced and how this was a sign. She says a sign had already been given, but Jesus now gave further evidence by revealing their thoughts. When he said to them, here's what you're gonna say. I know what you're gonna say because a prophet is not without honor except in his own country and among his own people. Here's what you're gonna say. Physician, heal yourself. The stuff you've done in Capernaum, do here. That's what you're thinking. So he actually does give them a sign, a deniable sign, by reading their hearts. The the Gospels do say on several occasions, Jesus knew what was in the heart of men. He knew what was in the heart of men. And Jesus here doesn't pull a rabbit out of a hat. He doesn't turn water to wine for their, you know, for the, the sake of satisfying their curiosity. But he does do a sign that pierced them. And they knew that something supernatural, something spiritual was going on here. He said, I know what you're thinking. I know what you're thinking. This is what you're thinking. You're thinking, hey, all the stuff you've done in Capernaum, do it here. Physician, heal yourself. And then it's in that context that Jesus demonstrates his mastery of the Old Testament by quoting from 1 Kings 17 and 2 Kings 5, telling the stories of how God bypassed Israel, right? Bypassed Israel and landed with favor, miraculous favor, on Gentiles. That's the, that's the theme of these two stories, right? The, 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 the connecting thread between the story of Naaman and the story of the widow of Zarephath is that God bypasses his chosen people and lands with miraculous favor on non-Jewish people. And if you want to pay attention here, and I've highlighted it in orange right there, right there, these little circles, these orange circles all say the heathen, the heathen, the heathen, the heathen. If somebody selected the word heathen, it's not my word, but if somebody had selected the word heathen or Gentile for today's chapter, it would have been a totally appropriate word, right? Because the thing that galled them, the thing that really pierced them was that not only had Jesus not spoken disparagingly and in a military voice about the conquering of the Gentiles, he had spoken as if The Jews themselves needed to be healed from blindness, needed to be liberated from captivity, that they themselves needed the things that were described in Isaiah 61 and Isaiah 49. And then when they questioned him about it, he says, I I, I know what you're thinking. And then he quotes two narratives from the Old Testament where God bypasses his 
chosen people when they were in a state of great national apostasy, at least in the case of Elijah, on Mount Carmel, and lands with miraculous favor on Gentiles. Jesus knew exactly what he was doing. Exactly what he was doing. And again, it shows that he was a son of the law. He was a son of the covenant. He was a son of Torah. He had a mastery of the Old Testament. He knew those scriptures back to front and front to back. And when he quotes these passages, yeah, they didn't like it. And I like Ellen White's summary, page 265, 239. I like Ellen White's summary of what these two stories have in common, Naaman and the widow of Zarephath. The servants whom God had chosen for a special work were not allowed to labor for a hard-hearted and unbelieving people. She continues, in the days of Elijah, Israel had departed from God. They clung to their sins, rejected the warnings of the spirit through the Lord's messengers. Thus, they cut themselves off from the channel by which God, uh, God's blessing had come to them. And I underline that, they cut themselves off. They cut themselves off. In fact, I gave myself one of those little symbols. Where did I, where did I tie that? Where did that go? Surely that goes somewhere. Oh, here it is. Here it is, here it is, here it is. Oh, 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 yeah. So I did my little thing here where I made my little circle with the dot in the middle. That's one of my little signs, one of my little symbols that alerts me, oh, something similar is said in this same chapter like that. So here, they cut themselves off. They cut themselves off. Okay, then I turn the page. I think it's the next page, yep. So it's really just about three paragraphs later. I turn the page. And here's that same symbol right here. Same symbol. Now let me read to you. It says, The words of Jesus to his hearers in the synagogue struck at the very root of their self-righteousness, pressing home upon them the bitter truth that they had departed from God and forfeited their claim to be his people. Forfeited. The, what does it mean to forfeit? When you forfeit something, it's not taken from you. It's given up. It's, it's given up. When you forfeit something, you give it up. It's given up, not taken. And so that idea of they forfeited their claim and they cut themselves off is the idea that God is not doing something to Israel. God is not doing something to them. He's acknowledging and recognizing and accepting the decisions that they themselves are making. That's the way that sin works, friends. Sin has an inbuilt obsolescence. Sin has an inbuilt self-destructive power that God doesn't have to go do something to you. He gives you over to the consequences of the choices that you yourself have made and you then forfeit. You then cut yourself off from the point of connection, in this case, Messiah. That's the way sin works, right? Sin has an inbuilt, sin when it is finished brings forth death is what James says. Um, so here we go. She talks about that. She then goes in on that uh, page there, 265 to describe the experiences of Naaman and the experiences of the widow of Zarephath. Um, (laughs) I thought this was a great line here. I just wrote preach in the, in the margin, bottom of page 265, 239, our standing before God, our status before God, our standing before God depends not upon the amount of life we have received, but upon the use we make of what light we have. Mm. Then she makes this incredible point. 
how the Jews actually were in greater danger and in greater condemnation because they had so much more light, right? What did Jesus say to Nicodemus, John chapter three, verse 19? This is the condemnation that light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. Condemnation is in direct proportion to light rejected and neglected. I'll say it again. Condemnation is in direct proportion to light rejected and neglected. And so the widow of Zarephath and Naaman responded to the tiny little bit of light that they had and they received the favor of Yahweh, even though they were Gentiles, even though they were non-Jews, where the Jews have just been flooded with light, the sanctuary, the Sabbath, Torah, flooded with light, and yet that light actually, how did Jesus say? If the light that is in you becomes darkness, how great is that darkness? That light actually served to fuel their national pride, to fuel their prejudices, to fuel their bigotry. By the way, two other words that come up again and again, and if you've been paying attention, they're coming up a lot in this book. But in this chapter, bigotry, prejudice. Bigotry, prejudice. That light they took as a sign of God's special favor not as we mentioned yesterday in the sense that they were the messengers to the world, but in the sense that they had some special status, some special standing. This is what John the Baptist spoke to when he said on the banks of the River Jordan there, when he was calling people to repentance, when he was calling people to prepare for Messiah's arrival, he said, don't say within yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. God can raise up children unto Abraham from these stones. So the light of Torah and of sanctuary and of Sabbath had actually become darkness to them. It had fueled their national prejudice and pride. It had fueled their bigotry. It had cut them off from sympathy with the surrounding nations. And Jesus speaks to that here. He applies the balm, the the, the salve, the cure, as if Israel also needs it, as if Israel is blind, as if Israel is in captivity. We've never been in captivity. You can see this is, in fact, she actually says it here. This is not going to do much to endear Jesus to his hometown crowd. Page 266, 240 of the original. When Jesus referred to the blessings given to the Gentiles, the fierce national pride of his hearers was aroused and his words were drowned in a tumult of voices. Fierce national pride. Fierce national pride. We talked... I just wrote here, fierce national pride, and I wrote here, compare 2.25. It reminded me of 2.25, so let me just flip back to 2.25. You might remember this because I highlighted it when we went through it. This is in the chapter Bethesda and the Sanhedrin, where, where Jesus destroys the Sanhedrin with facts and logic. Remember that? Listen to this. I'm on page 206 of the original, 225 of the types and symbols. I'll just read it. Whoever dared to condemn the rabbinical requirements or attempt to lighten the burdens they had brought upon the people was regarded as guilty not only of blasphemy, but of treason. You remember I mentioned this? Blasphemy is a religious crime. Treason is a national crime. It's, it's like anti-patriotism, right? And so, so when you have this incredible commingling of the church and state, of religion with government, <laughs> Jesus' spiritual points, Jesus' exposition of scripture was perceived as non-patriotic, as non-Jewish, right? And so it says the things that he said about the speaking favorably about the Gentiles, talking about 
you know, these were examples from their own history. Naaman and the widow of Zarephath, she says, when Jesus referred to the blessings given to the Gentiles, the fierce national pride of his hearers was aroused. And so this is where they attempt to kill him. And I just wrote that here, attempt to kill. And she describes, then she does this great little thing here where she talks about how the angels interposed because Luke in, you know, very, you know, skeletal fashion, very bare bones fashion, doesn't, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of <laughs> remarkably unremarkable. It just says, um, so all those in the synagogue, when they heard these things, they were filled with wrath. They rose up, thrust them out of the city, let them to the brow of the hill on which their city was built, that they might throw them down over a cliff, right? The tension is increasing. This is going to be a real serious situation. And then just this, then passing through the midst of them, he went his way. It's like, how? How? How does a man, right, who's being overcome with a mob of people who are uniformly, unanimously trying to throw him off of a cliff. I mean, if somebody was trying to throw you off of a cliff, Somebody's trying to throw me off of a cliff. A large group of people, say several dozen people, they're going to do it, right? I mean, I can't, I can't resist several dozen people, but it just says, yeah, but Jesus just walked away. What? Clearly, there's a supernatural interposition here. Luke doesn't tease out this detail. He just says that he walked through the midst of them. In other situations in the Gospels, similar kinds of things will happen, and Jesus will just say, my time has not yet come, and excuse himself, and then just, you know, be gone. But, but Ellen White does this great little thing here where she talks about the interposition of angels, and I'm not going to say a lot about this, but I am going to quote this one line, top of page 267, 241 of the original, because I can testify. I can relate. Here it is. From what dangers, seen and unseen, we have been preserved through the interposition of the angels we shall never know until in the light of eternity we see the providences of God. I have some instances in my life where I have been, I know that God showed up and delivered me, whether by a miracle, whether by a suspension of the laws of nature or of physics or by angelic intervention, I cannot say. But I've been in situations where I know that God did that thing. That was the thing that God did. One time I was hiking in New Zealand with my family and uh, <laughs> we had hiked, 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 hiked up this river called the Doubtful River. It's a great fishing river. And uh, we had done a little bit of fishing down low. And then there was this hut, this tiny little red hut that was kind of up one of the valleys called Doubtful Valley. And uh, we hiked up to this beautiful little hut. New Zealand has hundreds of these huts all scattered throughout the back country. It's, it's the best country in the Southern Hemisphere, New Zealand is. Norway is the best country in the Northern Hemisphere, by the way, in case you were wondering. Um, these are objective facts, not just my personal opinion. But anyway, we were in New Zealand and we'd hiked up the Doubtful River for a day. Then we'd hiked up this sort of mountain pass and we'd arrived at this tiny little red hut. When I mean tiny, I mean like the size of two of your couches put together. Like take your couch, take another couch, put it together. And it was like two little bunk beds and you could sleep four people in there. And happily for us, we were carrying a tent with us in case somebody was in the hut. But we got there. We had the hut to ourselves, this surrounded by this cirque of incredible mountains. And we woke up the next day, and it was just glorious and beautiful and awesome. And, and that's where the trail ended. But the mountain peak was still another probably, I don't know, two hours, three hours hike if you wanted to go. But it wasn't like there was no trail. It was just bushwhacking, right? Just cutting across 
the mountain. And so our boys were young. Um, I wish Violetta was here. She would know exactly how old. I'm going to say four and five. Four and five. Now, let me think about that. Maybe five and six. And you're saying, wait a minute, you hiked for two days when your kids, absolutely, man, our kids have been backpacking since they, you know, our kids have been backpacking since they were very young. And so they were like four, five, six in that area. I think five and six. Anyway, so we woke up the next day and this beautiful mountain is just right in front of us there. And we're like, let's climb the mountain. And I was like, yeah, let's do it. I think it was me that mainly wanted to do it. But Violet is up for it as well. So we start hiking up this mountain. Well, well, what happens is when you're looking at a, at a mountain straight on like this, it's hard to make out sort of the features and exactly what your route is. And so we kind of said, yeah, we think we can go like that and that and that. And you might be sitting there thinking, what kind of a person, what kind of an uh, irresponsible father, you know, when you're in the backcountry of New Zealand, already two days hike into the backcountry, would now go climbing a mountain off of a trail? I'm that kind of dad. That's me. I'm that kind of dad. By the way, both of my kids are still alive, so it all worked out. But I am convinced in this instance and in others that it was because of an interposition of angels. And here's what happened. We started hiking up this little section. We got into a, a, an area where we'd kind of gotten sort of bluffed out, where we, we couldn't go to the left. We couldn't easily go up. And to reverse what we'd come up was actually a little, and the, there was a little kind of um, dew on the grass. It was a little slippery. It was quite steep. And we had our hiking poles. And so what we did is I said, oh, Violetta, this situation's a little, it escalated quickly. It was like, ah, this situation's a little dodgy. So what we did was we put Violetta on one side and me on the other. And then we put, no, no, no. How did we do that? I think it was something like that. And then we put the two boys in the middle. Either that or we did parent, child, parent, child. No, no, no. That's what we did. We did child, me, child, Violetta. And I had one child with this hand and then another child and then... Violetta. So anyway, we start hiking up and it's just getting a little steeper and a little steeper and you're, you still feel somewhat safe, but the fall at this point is, is, is unthinkable. And you get to the place where you're like, um, yeah, probably shouldn't have done this. And I see unmistakably Melissa saying, give the kid a chance. Exactly. Exactly. That's what, that's what was said to me on the top of Half Dome when Landon was only seven weeks old. Give the kid a chance. Anyway, Long story short, we took a few more steps and I slipped. And when I slipped in that moment, I just saw my whole life and my family's life. It just passed before me in a second. And with just all of the strength that I could muster, I just, I just reached out. I, I just grabbed my family and I just pulled them close to the, to the, the rock face there, the cliff. And it was kind of grassy, rocky, and, and I just was like, this is a really dangerous situation. I'm so sorry. I, I, how did I do this? And it was terrifying. I mean, I slipped one leg and was able to arrest my, but if, if it had been two, I mean, I was certainly gone. I was holding on to my sons for dear life. They would have been, I mean, oh, even now when I think about it, I get the chills. And Violet and I will sometimes remind ourselves of how that was. That was not the example, the best example of responsible parenting. So what she's saying here is, is that the angels deliver Jesus and there have been many times, those which we know about, like this experience, you know, in the Doubtful Valley of New Zealand um, and experiences we don't even know. We don't even know where angels come down. There is this great controversy that's taking place and we are being delivered more often than we probably know or imagine. Okay, um,
she then says something very interesting, going back to what Jesus had quoted in the synagogue when he quoted Isaiah 49 and 61. She says he had purposefully left off, I'll read this to you, again, page 267, 241. When Jesus in the synagogue read from the prophecy of Isaiah, he stopped short of the final specification concerning the Messiah's work. Having read the words to proclaim the acceptable year of Yahweh, he omitted the phrase, and the day of vengeance of our God, Isaiah 61.2. This was just as much truth as was the first of the prophecy, and his silence did not deny the truth. But this last expression was that upon which his hearers delighted to dwell. Ooh, wait, wait. Tell us that part again. Tell us that part again about the vengeance of Yahweh. And Jesus provocatively, purposefully leaves that off, just doesn't say it, just reads to proclaim the acceptable year of Yahweh and then closes the book, rolls the scroll, doesn't say and to proclaim the, uh, the day of the vengeance of our God. She continues, but this last expression was that upon which his hearers delighted to dwell and which they were desirous of fulfilling. They denounced judgments against the heathen. There it is again, heathen, Gentiles. Blech. Not discerning their own guilt was even greater. That's what we mentioned earlier. Condemnation is directly proportional to light received and either neglected or rejected. They themselves were in the deepest need of the mercy. They were so ready to deny the heathen. And I see there that I didn't circle that heathen. So let me just do that real quick so I don't forget. So that word, that word, that phrase, heathen, just comes up again and again and again and again. And how good is that? How good is that writing? How good is that summary? They themselves were in deepest need of the mercy. They were so ready to deny the heathen. Not cool. Not cool. Um... Next page. Um, this has got Daniel 9 written all over it. Listen to this. Remember Daniel 9? Messiah rejected, city destroyed. Messiah rejected, city destroyed. Um, middle paragraph on page 268, 241 of the original. Unbelief. Remember I said, pay attention to that word in this chapter. Unbelief, having been once cherished, continued to control the men of Nazareth. So it controlled the Sanhedrin and the nation. With the priests and the people, the first rejection of the demonstration of the Holy Spirit's power was the beginning of the end. In order to prove that their first resistance was right, they continued ever after to cavil at the words of Christ. Their rejection of the Spirit culminated in the cross of Calvary, rejection of Messiah, in the destruction of their city, destruction of the city, and in the scattering of the nation to the winds of heaven. I just wrote Daniel 9. That's Daniel 9. Paul understood Daniel 9. John understood Daniel 9. Jesus understood Daniel 9. Ellen White understood Daniel 9. She says it. Their rejection of the Spirit culminated in the cross of Calvary and in the destruction of their city. That's Daniel 9. That's straight up Daniel 9, which again is my point, that yesterday's chapter in the sort of big, broad, prophetic strokes gives way to an instance, a for example, in today's chapter of the actual, in the trenches, on the ground, face-to-face -face rejection of the Messiah Jesus because he didn't flatter their national hopes and ambitions and feed their prejudices and their bigotry. Next paragraph. 
Oh, how Christ longed to open to Israel the precious treasures of the truth. But such was their spiritual blindness that it was impossible to reveal to them the truths relating to his kingdom. Thus they clung to their creed and their useless ceremonies. Impossible. Impossible. I highlighted the word impossible. Impossible. Friends, there are things that not even God can do. There are things that not even God can do. God can turn water into wine, right? Because the water doesn't resist the overtures of the Almighty. But human beings with our heart, our selfish, bigoted, prideful, prejudiced heart, we can resist God's overtures and God respects our resistance. And if we continue consistently to resist, God will give us over to the culmination, to the consequences of the choices that we ourselves have made. It's impossible. Yes, God can turn water into wine, but God cannot change your mind. He cannot change your heart. He cannot make you willing. The way this is sometimes said is God cannot predestine the free actions of man. It's oxymoronic. God can't make you do something freely. And so it's impossible. And she goes on to say, oh, she, she quotes Jesus in Luke 13, 35. See, your house is left to you desolate. Why does Jesus say your house is left to you desolate in Luke 13, 35? We'll get to this eventually later. He's quoting from Daniel 9, the abomination that makes desolate. Uh, Daniel is all over Jesus' understanding, his self-understanding, his understanding of Messiah, of his mission, Paul's understanding of Messiah and mission. No wonder Jesus said, go back and read what Daniel said. When you therefore shall see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet stand in the holy place, let whoso read understand. Your house, your house. When he had begun his public ministry, it was my father's house. My father's house. You've turned my father's house into a den of thieves. At the end of his ministry, behold, your house is now desolate. Messiah rejected, city destroyed. Messiah rejected, city destroyed. Messiah rejected, city destroyed. That's Daniel 9. And then she describes how the minds of the Jews had become narrowed by their unreasoning bigotry. The lessons of Christ revealed their deficiencies of character and demanded repentance. If they accepted his teachings, their practices must be changed and their cherished hopes relinquished. What cherished hopes? Well, that they were somehow superior, genetically, nationally, culturally, spiritually superior. And all of those heathen, all of those Gentile, all of the off-scouring of the earth, the filth of humanity, that they, Jesus is like, yeah, no, yeah, no. No, I love them. Remember the story of the widow of Zarephath and the story of Naaman? Yeah, the prerogative of the Jewish nation was not to be a special ethnic people, a special better people. It was to be the messengers of the covenant, the deliverers of the good news. And yet the light that was in them had become darkness and they, their cherished hopes were relinquished. She talks about how Jesus, um, the, the truth that he proclaimed was unpopular, unpopular, unpopular. She says it three times. The Jewish leaders were filled with spiritual pride because their understanding was darkened by selfish prejudice, prejudice, bigotry, prejudice, bigotry, prejudice, bigotry, heathen, 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 Gentiles, 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 widow of Zarephath, the, the name in the Syrian. This is all, all this chapter is heading in the same direction. Insularity, insubordination, bigotry, pride, national pride, personal pride, spiritual pride, cultural pride, prejudice, Come on, 
This was cool. Right almost at the very end, page 269, 242. If he was, speaking of Jesus, if he was satisfied to be without the force of arms, what would become of their nation? How could the power and glory so long anticipated bring the nations as subjects to the city of the Jews? Who is this? How can this guy be the Messiah? He doesn't have any soldiers. He's got no swords. I mean, if we follow this guy as the Messiah, what would become of our nation? This is exactly what will be said at the very end of Jesus' life when someone's going to speak up and say, it's better that one man should perish than that our whole nation should be compromised. And in fairness, in fairness, as, as I said at the outset, if we're reading this as a condemnation of them and not looking introspectively at ourselves, the truth is that we all are afraid that the thing that we think matters most is not the thing that matters most, right? Like they were afraid that they would lose their identity. They would lose their nation. They would lose their standing. Well, Jesus hadn't come to flatter their national prides and Jesus had not established pride. Jesus had not established Israel as some sort of ethnic, national, superior superior rank or, or class of people. Their job was to be messengers, to be heralds. And so they just misunderstood their mission. They misunderstood their own identity. And then this fueled their pride and their bigotry and their prejudice and their hatred for those around them. Had not the priests taught that Israel was to bear rule over all the earth, could it be possible that the great religious teachers were wrong? And then the second to the last paragraph, and this is where I got my word, my word for the day, and here it is. Word for the day was this. But it was not simply the absence of outward glory in the life that led the Jews to reject Jesus. It was the embodiment of purity and they were impure. Ooh, ooh. He was the embodiment of purity and they were impure. He dwelt among men, an example of spotless integrity. His blameless life flashed light upon their hearts. His sincerity revealed their insincerity. It made manifest the hollowness of their pretentious piety. Whoa, stop it now. And discovered iniquity in them in its odious character. Such a light was unwelcome. That's my word. Unwelcome. Jesus was unwelcome in his hometown. Jesus was unwelcome in his own nation. Jesus' truths were unwelcome. His teachings were unwelcome. The only thing that Jesus did that people welcomed, the majority of people, was the cool miracles that he did, the cool stuff. Jesus will later say this in John chapter six, when he'll say, the reason that you followed me around the lake is that you saw the miracle. You ate the loaves and the fish and now you want another sandwich, basically. They thought that Jesus did some kind of cool stuff, but such a light was unwelcome. I'll just read the last paragraph here. If Christ called attention to the Pharisees and had extolled their learning and piety, they would have hailed him with joy. But when he spoke of the kingdom of heaven as a dispensation of mercy for all mankind, Jew and Gentile alike and equal, both in need, equally in need of the grace of God and the goodness of God and the mercy of God. He was presenting a phase of religion that they would not tolerate. Their own example and teaching had never been such as to make the service of God seem desirable. Mm, That's ugly. When they saw Jesus giving attention to the very ones they hated and repulsed, they hate. Jesus is giving attention. Jesus is giving regard. Jesus is speaking affirmingly of the very ones that we hate and repulse. It stirred up the worst passions of their hearts. 
notwithstanding their boast that under the line of the tribe of Judah, Israel should be exalted to preeminence over all the nations, they could have borne the disappointment of their ambitious hopes better than they could bear Christ's reproof of their sins and the reproach they felt even from the presence of his purity. Incredible. Incredible. He was unwelcome. Unwelcome. He was unwelcome in Nazareth. He was unwelcome in Jerusalem. He was unwelcome in the temple. He was unwelcome with the Jewish leadership. And eventually they hung him on a Roman cross and said, unwelcome. But it's not just they, it's us. And the truth is, is that we all are prone in our natural, unregenerate, unconverted, unresuscitated state to reject the light of truth, the light of mercy, the light of the goodness of God. We'd rather cling to our personal pride and bigotry and prejudice. And what we need to pray is, God, help me to be not unwelcoming of Jesus and of his light and of his truth. Okay, let's do the rubric. What's the point of this chapter? Number one, to tell the story of the unwelcome Jesus, the unwelcome of Jesus and his teachings that he received, uh, that was received in his own hometown. That's a little awkwardly worded. To tell the story of the unwelcome Jesus and his teachings received in his own hometown. There it is. To tell the story of the unwelcome Jesus and his teachings received in his own hometown and among his own people. That's Daniel 9. That's Daniel 9. 70 weeks are determined for your people, for your holy city to bam, 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 bam. If not, Messiah rejected, city destroyed, Messiah rejected, city destroyed, Messiah rejected, city destroyed. That's a big, broad picture that we looked at yesterday. Jesus comes to Nazareth, unwelcome, rejected. We're gonna throw this guy off a cliff. He doesn't flatter our national ambitions, pride and prejudice. He's gonzo, but he escapes out of their midst. Okay, what do we learn about the person that Jesus resides and restores and redeems in the places that he is Welcome. Yes, Jesus resides and restores and redeems in the places that he is welcome. That's what we learn about God. I want to welcome him into my heart, into my life, into my family, into my home. How can we pray? God, here's my prayer. God, free my mind, the mind of David Asherick, and free my heart, the heart of David Asherick, from every ounce, from every residue of bigotry and prejudice and pride. There's no room in the heart of the Christian for bigotry and racism and prejudice and discrimination. There's no, there's no room, no room. God loves and accepts all people equally, male, female, Jew, non-Jew, black, white, rich, poor, educated, uneducated. Come on now. God, get rid of all prejudice and bigotry from my heart. Help me to see every other human being as fundamentally the same as me and equally and wonderfully in need of the grace and goodness and mercy and truth of God. Finally, the practice. How can we practice this, right? The point, the person, the prayer, the practice to apply truth's cutting blade to myself first and foremost, and to avoid self-deception at all costs. To apply truth's cutting blade to myself, first and foremost, and to avoid self-deception at all costs. How can the deceitful human heart avoid self-deception? The flattering 
of national pride and prejudice and bigotry, the only the spirit, only the light of scripture, studies like the one we're doing here with DA with DA, uh, we have to have Jesus. Jesus regenerates, Jesus resuscitates, Jesus resurrects, DA with DA. Is this not the carpenter's son? Yes, it is the carpenter's son, but so much more. He's not just the carpenter's son. He's also the son of God that wants to come into your life and wants to come into my life and transform our prejudiced, bigoted, hardened, prideful hearts into places that are receptive and receiving, welcoming of Jesus and his truth. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you have seen into our innermost souls and you know, you see now and you have seen in the past, you know, Father, where we need those moments of deliverance, those, those moments where the truth, the, the scalpel of truth cuts and wounds us, not for the purpose of injuring us or of killing us, but for the purpose of saving us, of bringing us face to face with our own need of truth. Father, it's so easy to look at others and say, man, they need the truth and they need Father, help us to look in the mirror and say, well, what do I need? Do not I need the truth as verily as anyone else? Do I not need Jesus to be welcomed into my heart as much as anyone else? Say, yes, Father, we live in increasingly sensual and secular and hostile times. But Father, but for the grace of God, there go we. Our hearts need, crave, we, we, we must have, Father, if we are going to be saved at last, the transformative power of your spirit, washing away prejudice, washing away pride, washing away discrimination and bigotry. Father, do that for us. And I pray, Father, that when Jesus comes into our heart, comes into our life and sits down and sups with us and dines with us, that he would be welcome here, that he would reside here. And in that residence, just like Elijah resided in the house of the widow of Zarephath, Father, may Jesus reside in our hearts and may the oil never cease. May the oil never cease. May the Holy Spirit just continue to flow in our lives in the way that we think, the way that we act, the way that we behave toward others, the way that we treat others. Father, transform us, we pray, by the man who is the carpenter's son and your son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.